You know, listeners, it's been a rough few months. A rough few years, really. There's been a lot of loss and a lot of anger and a lot of hurt. And for the most part, I feel pretty insulated and safe here inside the cement walls of the bunker. But as the volume gets turned up on the outside world, these cement walls sometimes don't feel quite thick enough for my liking. And I wish there was somewhere else I could go. Somewhere far from all the worries and fears that are hounding us like angry locusts. And maybe I've found a place like that. Someplace far from all of this and yet right under our very feet. And I'm happy to take you all with me. So to that end, let's explore the center of the earth. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today is anyone with a stout heart and an open mind. If you have an open heart and a stout mind, that's fine too. Because today we are going to be doing a deep dive, and that's not unusual for us. We always do deep dives, but today we're going to be doing one literally, as we explore the idea that the Earth is hollow and perhaps filled with wisdom and utopia, or monsters. It's a story that'll feature explorers, pop culture, pulp novels, dreamers, scammers, and flying saucers. So let's get right to the good stuff. First, I'll go through the tall tale version of the story, assembled from several intriguing but shady sources. Then I'll go through the story again, but this time using more reliable sources, and I think the tall tale will probably get maybe a bit shorter, but it'll stay weird. So here's the tall tale version for you. In 1945, two months after the end of the war in Europe, two German submarines showed up at a port in Argentina, U-530 and U-977. The captains immediately surrendered their ships to the Argentinian Navy, but provided no explanation as to where they had been or why it had taken them two months after their government had capitulated to turn themselves in and give up. The logbooks in the submarines were nowhere to be found, but rumors started to circulate that these two submarines had been part of a top-secret desperate mission to keep the Third Reich going even after the defeat of Germany and the end of the war, by transporting high-ranking Nazi officials to a massive hidden base deep in the icy terrain of Antarctica. The plan was almost a decade in the making. In 1938, the German steamship Schwabenland, carrying two seaplanes and a construction crew, had quietly gone to the bottom of the world. While the seaplanes flew overhead mapping out the area, the rest of the crew got busy building a fortress in a strange, ice-free oasis in the midst of the icy continent that was christened Neuschwabenland. And already I'm regretting doing an episode with so many German words when Lee isn't around. But the Germans didn't just come across a lush green Shangri-La hidden in the Antarctic waste. They had also discovered a massive hole that led into the Earth itself, and when they ventured into the hole, they discovered another civilization living under the Earth's crust. This underground society possessed technology far surpassing anything humans had developed. Using an energy force called Vril, this power that was able to carve tunnels through the Earth, power flying vehicles, or even destroy or create life. And it was harnessed through the use of focused willpower. The Nazi explorers formed an alliance with this powerful underground society and started sending the Vril technology back to Germany to be studied and weaponized. Once World War II started, British intelligence learned of this base and, recognizing the grave threat that this new technology would pose once the Nazi scientists were able to fully understand it, they sent a team of SAS commandos to the Antarctic to destroy the base. However, this operation was unsuccessful as the small force was unable to penetrate the Neuschwabenland fortress. 
and the British commandos were wiped out by terrifying weapons that concentrated Vril into rays that incinerated the men where they stood. <coughs> and so, a few years later, even as Germany was in ruins and the Allied armies were at the doorstep of Berlin, two U-boats snuck away to bring high-level Nazis, including maybe even Adolf Hitler himself, to the Neuschwabenland base in order to regroup and start plans to re-emerge and once again bring terror and destruction to the world. This is why, in 1947, a massive task force was assembled by the United States Navy. Under the orders of Secretary of the Navy James Forrestal, an aircraft carrier named the U.S. Philippine Sea and her 33 aircraft served as the flagship, and she was accompanied by a small fleet of destroyers, icebreakers, supply ships, and even a submarine. Led by the intrepid Admiral Richard Byrd, who had won the Medal of Honor for his bravery and was already the veteran of several expeditions to the Antarctic, the fleet sailed south to invade Neuschwabenland. It was supposed to be a six-month mission. However, things did not go as planned. As the fleet neared Antarctica, they faced heavy resistance. In addition to jet fighters, a weird new craft was seen, saucer-shaped, and emerging silently from beneath the ocean. They maneuvered in a manner that the American sailors couldn't understand, and as the crews of the ships looked on in horror, these saucer-shaped craft used powerful lasers to shoot the U.S. Navy Corsair fighter planes out of the sky. The torpedo boat USS Maddox attempted to engage with the saucers with their anti-aircraft weaponry, but were unable to even come close to hitting any of the saucers. Instead, the saucers turned their death rays on the Maddox, and the ship burst into flames and sank beneath the waves, taking its crew along with it. After this engagement, Admiral Byrd's fleet retreated. It had only been two months instead of the six months the operation had originally been scheduled for. Upon passing through Chile on the way back, a reporter asked Byrd what had happened, and Byrd responded that the task force had encountered a new enemy that could fly from the South Pole to the North Pole at an incredible speed. Only two years after the disastrous Antarctic battle, James Forrestal was asked by President Truman to resign and was sent to the National Naval Medical Center for treatment. Forrestal would be found days later dead after falling from a 16th floor window in the hospital. Finally, a decade later, another American fleet sailed south to finish what Byrd's fleet had started. This was done in complete secrecy, and most of the task force's records would be destroyed or hidden afterwards. Several nuclear missiles were fired at the base, finally destroying it in a barrage of atomic explosions. And that's the tall tale version. And like many tall tales, it's made up of a mixture of some truth, uh, deliberate falsehoods, and accidental misinformation. In order to put together what actually happened, we need to start by going way back to 1692 and discussing the work of famed English astronomer Edmund Halley. If the name sounds familiar, it's because he was the scientist that predicted that the comets that had been seen in the sky in 1531, 1607, and 1682 were actually the same comet, and that it would return in 1835. He was correct, of course, and while he didn't live to see it, he did get the honor of having the comet named after him. Halley had also noticed something odd about the Earth's magnetic field. It didn't seem to be completely stable. As a ship traveled west in the ocean, their compass seemed to deviate away from true north, almost as if the magnetic poles weren't fixed in place but wobbled around a little. His solution to this odd situation was that the Earth wasn't a solid mass, but instead had smaller spheres within it that were spinning at slightly different speeds and directions from the outer sphere. This would explain why the magnetic field of the Earth wasn't constant. This is a pretty good and ingenious solution and isn't that much different from the beliefs of modern geologists. 
The key distinction being that while modern geologists also think the Earth is composed of concentric layers, other than the solid core at the center, they're mostly made of molten rock, and there aren't any gaps in between them that could contain a breathable atmosphere. And to Haley, not only was there a breathable atmosphere down there that kept the layers from crashing into each other, there was probably light as well. Maybe some of the material that made up the sun could also be found under the Earth's crust. And if there was light and air, there was almost certainly life. As Haley wrote, Since we see all the parts of the creation abound with inanimate beings, as the air with birds and flies, the water with the numerous varieties of fish, and the very earth with reptiles of so many sorts, all whose ways of living would be to us incredible did not daily experience teach us, why should we think it strange that the prestigious mass of matter whereof this globe does consist should be capable of some other improvement than barely to serve to support its surface? In other words, there's all sorts of weird creatures living in weird places that we know of, so it's a safe assumption that there are weirder creatures living in even weirder places that we don't know about yet. It's not a terrible argument. It's similar to the one used to justify belief in extraterrestrial life. And while it hasn't yet been proven to be true of the interior of the world, it did prove to be true of some other seemingly uninhabitable spots, like the side of volcanic vents on the bottom of the ocean, which are crawling with crabs and tube worms. Well, Haley did propose an underground world filled with air, light, plants, and animals, he didn't say anything about how to get there. That would happen in 1818, when an American army captain named John Cleves Symes started distributing pamphlets that said the following. To all the world, I declare the earth is hollow and habitable within, containing a number of solid concentric spheres, one within the other, and that it is open at the poles 12 or 16 degrees, I pledge my life in support of this truth, and am ready to explore the hollow, if the world will support and aid me in this undertaking. I ask 100 brave companions, well equipped to start from Siberia in the fall season, with reindeer and sleighs, on the ice of the frozen sea. I engage we will find a warm and rich land, stocked with thrifty vegetables and animals, if not men. On reaching one degree northward of latitude 82, we will return in the succeeding spring." It's uncertain how Symes arrived at his conclusion. At the time he printed off his pamphlets, he was working as a trader in Mississippi. The fact that he mentions the concentric circles suggests that he may have been familiar with the work of Haley, or familiar with somebody who was familiar with that work. As for his motivation for the expedition, that's also hard to figure out. Although he did have ten children, so he might have just wanted an excuse to get away from the house for a while. As well, this was at a time in history when the polar regions were amongst the few unexplored areas of the world. Colonialism had been going on for some time, and most of the rest of the world had been invaded by one colonial nation or another. But Symes wasn't able to gather his hundred men or any funding for an expedition. What he did manage to do was write a science fiction novel under the pen name Captain Adam Seaborn, in which the main character undertakes an expedition to the South Pole and discovers a massive hole in the ground that leads to a subterranean world filled with warmth, plants, and animals, and a utopian society of evolved human beings. Well, Symes didn't put his name on the book, he did put his name in the book, by having the main character refer to him constantly to discuss just how right and smart he was, and how everyone should have totally believed him and listened to him. And also, the underground world in the book was named Symesonia. The book didn't sell that well, but Symes kept at it, crisscrossing the country giving lectures about the hollow earth and the holes at the poles. He also petitioned the American government again to provide him with funding for an expedition, and again unsuccessfully. 
Symes did make the acquaintance of a young newspaper editor named Jeremiah Reynolds, who quit his job at the newspaper to join Symes on his lecture circuit. After Symes died in 1829, tragically still on the surface of the earth rather than deep within it, Reynolds continued lecturing and writing about the hollow earth and the Symes holes that could get you there. He even successfully put together a few expeditions to the southern hemisphere, although we never found a Symes hole. But the contagious idea of the hollow earth didn't end there, because while few people may have heard of Jeremiah Reynolds or Captain Symes, one person who was a big fan of Reynolds was a young writer named Edgar Allan Poe. Poe was just starting out and used the idea of the Symes holes as an inspiration for a number of his stories, including his only novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. After Poe, the hollow earth mantle was picked up by famed French 19th century sci-fi writer Jules Verne, who had read French translations of Poe that had been published by the French poet Baudelaire. In Verne's novel, The Desert of Ice, he has one of his characters state, In recent times, it has even been suggested that there are great chasms at the poles. It is through these that there emerges the light from which forms the aurora, and you can get down them to the interior of the earth. And so the Symes holes went from the brain of Symes, to Reynolds, to Poe, to Verne. Verne would go on to write a classic of science fiction titled Journey to the Center of the Earth, although his characters used a massive drilling machine to get there rather than a Symes hole. As kind of an odd side note, there was a new religious movement that formed in the late 19th century in New York State, in which the leader, a man named Cyrus Teed, claimed that we already lived in the inside of the Earth. And what we thought of as the sky was actually the space in the center of the planet. When we thought we were looking up, we were actually looking in. If we could have seen far enough, we would have seen the other side of the world above us in the sky. After getting electrocuted, having this vision and changing his name to Koresh, he started preaching the gospel of Koreshanity and formed a community of like-minded believers in Chicago in 1888. Eventually, the Chicago communes were shut down, and the group moved to an island off the coast of Florida, of course. The Korshans, they ran a few candidates for public office at the beginning of the 20th century, unsuccessfully, and Koresh himself eventually succumbed to injuries he received while trying to break up a brawl out front of a grocery store. Before his death, though, he had told his followers that he was capable of the incorruptible dissolution of the physical body by electromagnetic combustion. In other words, he'd be able to renew his body and come back to life. The Korshans took his body back to the commune where they waited eagerly for him to come back. After a few days of ripening in the Florida heat, it became clear to most observers that whatever electromagnetic combustion was, Koresh's body wasn't doing it. After officials came and removed the corpse and interred it in a mausoleum, some of the Korshans came to break it out to make sure it hadn't come back to life. Then a hurricane hit, and the entire mausoleum and everything in it was swept out to sea. History is a very, very strange place. The pop culture of the 20th century was filled with underground civilizations. Morlocks, mole men, slee stacks, chuds, which are my favorite. From a sci-fi narrative perspective, it was a handy way of getting your characters into a strange and alien new environment without having to figure out the hassle of getting them through the immense distances of outer space. So we can say that the idea of a secret subterranean world was definitely present in the zeitgeist. But what about the idea that the underground inhabitants were sending flying saucers into our skies? As it turns out, that shows up extremely early in the flying saucer phenomenon. 
In fact, you could say that it begins slightly before the first saucer flaps of the late 1940s. In 1943, a letter appeared in the sci-fi magazine Amazing Stories. It was written by a man named Richard Shaver, who claimed that he had discovered proof of the legend of Atlantis hidden in code within the English language. The letter was a big hit with the magazine's readers, so Ray Palmer, the editor of the magazine, contacted Shaver and asked him to write a longer piece. Shaver sent in a 10,000-word manuscript, and Palmer, the editor, added another 20,000 words to it, and that's a heck of an editing job, and titled it, I Remember Lemuria. The piece ended up being a vivid description of an advanced underground civilization, and the edition in which it appeared sold out immediately. Palmer started running more Lemuria stories since his readers were eating him up. And after the Kenneth Arnold UFO sightings in 1947 which fired off the first flying saucer flap of the 20th century and began the modern flying saucer myth, Palmer started adding flying saucers to Shaver's Lemuria stories. Now they weren't just a super-advanced civilization under the Earth, but they were a civilization that would occasionally buzz our airplanes in their UFOs. Of course, just because all of these ideas existed in pop culture doesn't mean that they didn't also exist in real life. So what about the specific claims made in our tall tale of South Pole Nazi saucer battles? How much of that holds up to scrutiny? We can start with that 1938 German Antarctic expedition. It was real. It was a real thing, and we have the photos and the paperwork to prove it. It was led by Captain Alfred Richer and the 8,000-ton ship Schwabenland, which sailed down to a section of the coast of the continent named Droning Maud Island. I was about to say it was on the north coast, but I think all of the coast of Antarctica is the north coast, because it's the South Pole. The expedition left Germany in December of 1938 and arrived on January 19, 1939. They stuck around till February 6th, mapping the coastline and dropping swastika flags to claim ownership of the area. On their way home, they checked out a few Brazilian islands to see if they would make good submarine bases, then returned to Germany in mid-April. Their survey work of Antarctica was well-reported in scientific journals at the time. It wasn't a secret mission, although the parts where they scoped out the Brazilian islands was supposed to be secret. According to the exhaustive research done by Colin Summerhays and Peter Beeching, there was no mention in any of the German documents of any intention to set up a massive base. Instead, the purpose was to establish a whaling station. This was a time in which whale oil was still a fairly important commodity. In addition, the length of time in which the expedition was off the coast of Antarctica was less than a month, which isn't nearly enough time to build anything permanent in that harsh environment. Summerhays and Beeching also noticed that anyone who claimed in writing to know the location of the supposed secret German base had placed it in various and inconsistent areas, which doesn't fill one with confidence that any of them knew what they were talking about. The fact that the Schwabenland didn't bring any heavy equipment for construction or dog sleds for transportation means that any work would have had to have been done by hand, which again isn't the best way to build a high-tech secret base in one of the most forbidding environments on Earth. As for the idea that the British commandos launched an attack on a secret German base at the South Pole, there was a secret Antarctic operation, Operation Tabarin, that was carried out in late 1943 to early 1944. However, according to the official manifest, the team members weren't commandos. They were carpenters, cooks, handymen, geologists, meteorologists, lichenologists, surveyors, and general laborers. 
The expedition, which was originally called Operation Bransfield after an Antarctic explorer before someone realized that the whole point of naming a secret operation is not to give away the point of that operation in the name, was to establish a British presence on the continent in order to strengthen the claim the British Empire had in the area, particularly on the Falkland Islands. What about those two German U-boats showing up in Argentina after the war in Europe was already over? That also happened. U-530 showed up to surrender in Mar del Plata on July 10, 1945, and U-977 showed up on August 17th. Since the Germans surrendered on May 5th, that means that U-530 was a month late in surrendering, and U-977 was over two months late. Did they spend that time shuttling German high command to an Antarctic base? Well, part of the problem with that hypothesis should be clear just from the dates, July and August. That's the middle of the winter in the Southern Hemisphere. Modern nuclear submarines have no issue diving beneath polar ice and staying under indefinitely. But World War II U-boats were diesel-electric powered, and they had to surface in order to run their diesel engines. The speed, range, and amount of time that they could spend underwater running on batteries was pretty limited. But if those two U-boats weren't in Antarctica, where were they? U-530 was a Type 9C40 U-boat which meant that it had a top speed of about 21 miles an hour surfaced, or 8.5 miles an hour underwater. According to interrogation records of the crew, the captain of the U-530 was off the coast of New York when he heard the news of Germany's surrender, and decided to go to Argentina, which was a friendlier nation to Germany than America would have been at the time. The captain claimed that they spent some of the time traveling underwater during the day, and only surfaced at night. The speed they traveled was less than 10 miles an hour surfaced and less than 3 miles an hour submerged in order to save as much fuel as possible. At those speeds, it would have taken a little over 60 days to get to Mar del Plata, which fits in with the ship showing up in mid-July. U-977 was a Type 7C U-boat, which was a slightly faster ship, but they had just left Norway when they heard about the surrender and decided to flee to Argentina and they had to slowly creep underwater past the British Isles to avoid being depth-charged by Allied aircraft or destroyers. Again, the timing of their arrival in Argentina makes sense, and the idea that they had stopped off in Antarctica first doesn't fit in with the timing. But what about the massive fleet that was assembled in 1947 for Operation High Jump? What kind of scientific expedition requires a fleet of warships, including an aircraft carrier? The truth is, it actually was a military exercise. But the enemy wasn't unsurrendered Nazis. It was, naturally, the Soviet Union. It was 1947. The Pentagon was very concerned about the difficulties that American soldiers would face while operating in the Arctic, which was a likely field of operations if war with the USSR broke out. So, therefore, they wanted to practice training in an Arctic environment. But if they had sent a massive force north... That would have been a bit dicey. Stalin might have considered it a provocation or even a prelude to an invasion. And a war might have started accidentally. So the mission was sent to the South Pole instead to prevent that from happening. The operation also had the goals of establishing American sovereignty over a large section of Antarctica, although this was publicly denied at the time, and of gathering general knowledge in the areas of hydrography, geography, geology, and meteorology. A propaganda film was made of the operation, which for the most part was some of the dullest footage I had ever seen, and then briefly turned into some of the weirdest footage I had ever seen, 
as the ship crossed the equator and everyone dressed up like pirates and started spanking each other and throwing new recruits into the ocean. Aboard the Mount Olympus, now heading south in the Pacific, Admiral Cruzen gives a traditional command, and up goes a strange flag. The Jolly Roger, signifying the crossing of the equator and authorizing the ancient shenanigans of the sea, whereby all landlubbers are painfully presented at King Neptune's court. The veteran shellbacks copperplate the polywog's interiors with a mixture of cylinder oil and chewing tobacco. Next, the polywogs must kiss the bosun's belly, the only kiss they'll have for many a long month. They wind up with a dunking and a final whacking to warm them up, officers and men alike. While some of the goals were hidden, the mission itself was widely publicized, and there were 11 journalists on board the ships who wired over 2,000 messages back to the newspapers and radio stations. Hardly a secret mission. As for the idea that they engaged in battle with flying saucers with death rays, there are a number of issues with that. One, there's a specific ship that is mentioned in these stories as having been destroyed by the saucers, the torpedo boat USS Maddox. But there have only been three Navy ships named the Maddox. One was a destroyer built in 1918, which was eventually passed on to the Canadian Navy as the Georgetown. One was a destroyer that was built in 42 and then sunk by German bombers in 43. And one was built in 1944. But we know that that one can't have been sunk by flying saucers in 1947 because it was the Navy ship involved in the infamous Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964 that was the beginning of the American official involvement in the Vietnam War. So there couldn't have been a USS Maddox that was sunk by flying saucers in 1947. Two, if the flying saucers were powerful enough to easily sink one ship, why did they let the rest of the fleet go? How would any of the fleet have survived such an encounter? Three, the quotation from Admiral Byrd of a craft that could fly from pole to pole at incredible speeds is likely a mistranslation from the original story, which was printed in a Spanish-language newspaper. A more accurate translation would be, Admiral Richard E. Byrd warned today that the United States should adopt measures of protection against the possibility of an invasion of the country by hostile planes coming from the polar regions. The United States could be attacked by planes flying over one or both poles. Considering the Soviet Union was now the new threat, and particularly Soviet bombers, this isn't really that unusual a thing for the Admiral to have said. 4. I'm fairly familiar with the experimental aircraft that were in development or production by the Germans during World War II. The ME-163 and BA-349 rocket planes, for example, or the flying wings of the Horton brothers. It seems super unlikely that the Germans would have had access to flying saucer and ray gun technology that could have carved up American planes and ships, but then rather than using it, they saved it to defend an Antarctic base after the war was already over? The earliest reference to the idea that Nazi saucers attacked Byrd's fleet that I could come across was a book by Mattern and Friedrich, written in 1975, entitled UFOs, Nazi Secret Weapon. Question mark. And i got to say, that question mark is doing a lot of work in that title. There were earlier references to Nazi bases in Antarctica, and earlier references connecting flying saucers and underground civilizations. But this is the earliest mention I know of connecting Byrd's expedition with Nazis and flying saucers. And the problem is, Friedrich, who co-wrote the, the book, is a, it's a pen name. 
And it's the pen name of neo-Nazi Ernst Zundel, who is also the author of The Hitler We Loved and Why. Zundel is hardly a reputable source or trustworthy, and his UFO work was probably done just to drum up interest in his publishing company and to perpetuate more white supremacist Aryan bullshit about the mystical powers Nazis had at their command. Basically, the idea that Nazis had secret flying saucer technology might just be a bunch of neo-Nazi propaganda. What about the claim that the Americans eventually destroyed the base with nuclear weapons in the late 1950s? Well, fortunately, we already did an episode on that. It was titled Surviving the Nuclear Age and featured the brilliant and entertaining Dr. Shelley Lesher. I highly recommend that episode. In 1958, the American government carried out a top-secret test to see the effects of detonating nuclear warheads in the upper atmosphere. Again, top-secret and bizarre and done near the South Pole, but not anything to do with the secret Antarctic base. So, at this point, it appears as though none of the claims made in our tall tale have held up very well to scrutiny. So, hmm. We started off by looking for a nice diversion from the worries of the world by escaping under the surface of the Earth and ended up with Cold War experiments, Nazis, neo-Nazis, and nuclear explosions. On a more positive note, one of the reasons I doubt there was a giant Symes hole at the North Pole, at least, is that I know a person personally who went there, to the North Pole. David Shannon, who in 2009 became the first quadriplegic person to travel to the North Pole, where he planted a handicapped parking sign instead of a flag. And that is a much better note on which to end the episode. <laughs>